0: I was so honored to interview Joyce Carol Oates. I really couldn't even believe it when an email came across my you know, inbox where she was CC'd and I had to confirm our interview for the Stryker Center at Temple Emanuel. I was going to write back... Joyce, so excited. But then I was like, how can I just call her Joyce? I feel like, I don't know. So anyway, I interviewed her for the Temple Emanuel Stryker Center. It was amazing. And hundreds of people were there listening virtually. This is the recording of that interview, which I did that day. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. For those of you who don't know, Joyce Carol Oates is America's most prolific and celebrated living author. She published her first book at the age of 26, won the National Book Award when she was just 31, and for her 58 novels and scores of plays, novellas, short stories, poetry, and essays, won the National Humanities Medal, the Jerusalem Prize, two O. Henry Awards, and has been a five-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. We talked about her collection of poems, American Melancholy, and a collection of stories, The Other You. Enjoy our conversation. Hi, how are you? I feel like I can't just call you Joyce. I feel like, I don't know, that seems way too informal. So, Joyce is fine. Okay, I'm delighted to meet you. Thank you for doing this program with the Stryker Center. I am a huge fan of yours, and your latest works were truly unbelievable American Melancholy and the Other You. I was hoping that. As an introduction, you could talk a little bit about why you decided to write these two, especially as they released the same month, and why these two stories, why these two now? And I know that the, the, maybe we could start with the poems, which I know came from a lot of different places, and you decided to aggregate them. And let's talk about that, if
1: that's okay. Well, yes. For me, my primary means of creative expression, I suppose one could say, is prose fiction. So I don't write poetry every day. Usually my periods of writing poetry are sort of very intense interludes of emotional crisis or stress where everything is distilled and and very concentrated. The kind of energy that you need, perhaps for most people to write a novel, is sort of like a long distance runner. And sometimes you have energy for short sprints and things that that are much more concentrated. So I don't really write poetry continuously. The the poems in that collection were written in very intense interludes. American Melancholy is drawn together by the fact that my husband, Charlie Gross passed away in April, 2019. So the book that I've I've collected these poems have very much to do with with the concentration of emotion of, of grief and loss and looking back at our culture in the 20th century and focusing on subjects like, I have a little section of poems on what we could call scientific malpractice or scientific misconduct and some quintessential famous research experiments. But the book is it's actually bookended by, with poems that are about the loss of my husband. So a book of poems, I think for many poets, is an occasion for some intensity and distillation. I can't really imagine that I would have another book of poems. It's, it's my first book in 25 years. Wow.
0: Well, the way you wrote about your husbands, and I'm so sorry for your loss, was absolutely beautiful per usual. But even the way you wrote about... The hospice experience in the poem at the end. Do you mind if I read a line or two from it? Is that okay? That's fine. Uh, When you said, first you have it from your point of view and you alternate one, two, three, four, et cetera with his point of view. And you said, here, I'll start here. And so on the brink of too late when no one else is in the room for a hospice room can be crowded by crowded, meaning more than two people. You tell your husband that you love him so much. What a wonderful husband he has been. And he says, but I failed you by dying. And you protest, but why are you saying such a thing? You are not dying, we are talking here together. And he says, because I am dead. As after the final biopsy, he'd been incensed. They took my soul from me. They took me to the crematorium. I saw the sign. Don't try to tell me I didn't see the sign. And then you say, trapped in this bed like a prison. Is the car out, friend? Drive the car around. Where are the keys to the car? Joyce, don't leave. Joyce, we need to get the car. Where are the keys? I wanna go home. Take me home, Joyce, don't leave me. What did we do with the car? And then at the end, you say, after such struggle, you must love the unrippled dark water in which the perfect cold O of the moon floats. Oh,
1: It's beautiful and heartbreaking, and I'm so sorry. Thank you. When you were reading that, I almost didn't remember that I had written some of that. I probably am afraid to look at it. I shouldn't say that. I mean, I've looked at it many times, but maybe not for months. Some things that, you know, though we write them ourselves, we can't really bring ourselves to read them. I mean, that's been true of a lot of my writing, where the emotions are sort of pushed away by time. And then if you see them again, it becomes very fresh. I almost couldn't believe I had written that. Of course, it's pretty much real life.
0: Do you feel like it helps you when you're in the moment? Does it help you sort out your feelings when you write scenes like this and put them in in poetic form?
1: Well, I'm really haunted by certain subjects. And so I would say I'm literally, I mean, literally haunted in the sense that my thoughts just careen around like in a whirlpool. And I try to, through meditation or other attention, to draw away from from these areas of like gravity, like this intense whirlpool. And sometimes I can do that. And sometimes I can't. So I sort of concentrate on expressing what, what seems to want to be expressed. So I think that's true for many writers. I mean, looking back at 20th century, you know, famous writers like Eugene O'Neill, he was obviously obsessed with his parents. He wrote so much about his father. Hemingway wrote about obliquely women Mm -hmm. who were maybe like his mother, uh, we all have Mm -hmm. areas of being haunted. So writers are those Mm -hmm. people who focus on it, maybe trying to Mm exorcise it or maybe just trying to explore it. Wow. Well,
0: I found it interesting that you not only delved deep into your own loss and just to clarify from the chat I was reading from American Melancholy the book of poems and not only did you do this but you literally inserted yourself as the subject in many psychology experiments and having been a psychology major way back in the day to read these from the point of view of the subjects and to even get more information on you know some of the the researchers themselves and your thoughts onto why they were even doing this, like the relation of the Holocaust. And maybe you could talk a little bit more about Maslow and the Holocaust tie-in to what you were talking about in, in the poem. Well, that's I'm sorry, Stanley not Maslow. Millgram. Milgram, Milgram, not Maslow. That's, that's <laughs> that didn't Stanley sound right. Millgram.
1: Well, Maslow was another person mm-hmm. that I could write about maybe some other time. I'm interested in, in him also. But Stanley Milgram was Jewish, and he was a young assistant professor, I think, at Yale. He was probably like many, many Jews. He was haunted by the phenomenon of the Holocaust, and probably, I would surmise, many of his European relatives probably perished in in the death camps. So Stanley Milgram, as a young psychologist, wanted to try to understand that phenomenon, how we know that Hitler was insane, he was a homicidal maniac, and maybe the high-ranking Nazis were... But the, the Nazi phenomenon could not have taken place without the cooperation of average people, average German citizens, that a large, it's almost like an industrial apparatus of the so-called final solution that required many, many, many people, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of cooperative Germans. So Stanley Milgram, as a young research psychologist, wanted to understand how anybody could follow orders the way these people did. And so the famous Mm -hmm. or infamous series of experiments called Mm -hmm. Studies in Obedience that made Stanley Milgram Mm -hmm. very famous and very notorious, and he didn't get tenure at Yale. I think Mm -hmm. the backlash against him for exposing something about human nature that people didn't want to accept that's, he really suffered in the backlash, and he, he actually wasn't kept on at Yale. He may have gone somewhere else, you know, equally prestigious. I'm not remembering if he went to Columbia or someplace, so people, correct me if I'm wrong. But Stanley Milgram, I thought, was just a, astonishing, as a, just as a psychologist, very interesting. At the same time, we feel, in looking at his experiments, that he, too, was experimenting with people. He wasn't telling them quite the truth at all. He wasn't te- he wasn't telling his subjects that they were being experimented on. So maybe in a way he was trespassing. That's the probably the bottom line of that poem that I wrote that I wrote, is questioning Milgram himself. Well, and I think that's one of
0: one of the themes that you touch on in so many of these poems is who has the right to exert sort of their own theories on other people and their own will on other people, whether it's a man not treating a woman right in a relationship or a science experiment or any of these ways. I feel like you're meditating on the meaning of power and what makes someone sort of a victim as well. I feel like it was just kind of coursing. And then of course, as you said, bookended with your own loss to make you know, a very powerful package of, of reflections designed to really make the reader think through all of that.
1: Well, you said you were a psychology major, so you obviously studied the famous experiment, Little Albert. Yes, the conditioning—how easy it is to condition. You can condition anyone of any age, but particularly an infant who had no volition and had no protection. His mother really sort of gave him over to this experiment. Of course, his mother, I think, was a cleaning woman, and she only got, she was paid like $1. You know, it was very sad. But little Albert, he was a victim of a, an experiment we would consider incredibly cruel today.
0: And of course, you point out nobody deconditioned all the subjects in all of these studies, no one took the time to get them sort of back to normal. Instead, they just sort of let them into the world to fend for themselves.
1: It is amazing. John Watson is considered Mm -hmm. the the father of American advertising. Mm -hmm. You know, the advertising was a commercial replication and application of the Mm -hmm. ideas of Pavlovian conditioning on human beings, where you condition them to purchase your Cadillac or your deodorant or your shampoo, and -hmm. you're doing that with images that are usually visual. And it's usually like in a magazine or, or later on television, whereas the original experiments, of, of course, were in the lab, and they were actually with people, with living people. Wow.
0: The other poem I loved in this collection, by the way, was when the couple was, you called it, Too Young to Marry but Not Too Young to Die, about the couple that you said, together beneath the ice in each other's arms, Jean Marie's head rested on Troy's shoulder. Their hair had floated up and was frozen and their eyes were open in the perfect lucidity of death. Calmly, they sat upright, not a breath. Just so beautiful. And then you said, yet you could believe they might be breathing for some trick of scintillate light revealed tiny bubbles in the ice and emotion like a smile in Jean Marie's perfect fate. So it was about a couple that fell into the ice and this couple is young and you said, you know, they weren't even old enough to get married and yet they were hugging each other and like they seemed so happy and eyes wide open as they face death together. I don't know, it was the image. It reminded me of like the scene in the Titanic movie when the couple is sort of spooning in bed and the water is coming and they're just at peace clutching each other. And I just feel like, I don't know, it was just a perfect poem of love in all its form.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. That appeared originally in the the New Yorker and it had the sort of narrative look to it that it's like a story that unfolds we uh, are told by somebody reminiscing about when he was in high school, everybody was in awe of these very beautiful and handsome, this couple. You know, they were very beautiful. They were like the most popular couple and, and very envied. But then they had a kind of suicide pact because they weren't allowed to get married so young. So the boy drives them out, out into the ice, which becomes uh, thinner as, as you move away from shore. And then the car broke through the ice. and they. They sink down and they drown together in this sort of perfect union. And then the ice closes over above them. So they could be actually seen through the transparent ice. And it's it's like the way we freeze memories like romance and nostalgia are frozen back in time. Probably there are no emotions quite as strong as our adolescent emotions. They're sort of frozen <laughs> back there connecting with our, our high school, like the the corridors and the stairways and the lockers and the classrooms of a high school, for people who'd gone there, are just fraught with emotion, all, all kinds of adrenaline, you know, somebody else looking at it sees nothing. But the people who were once there and once teenagers, they feel so strongly. Well, I'm glad you said that because my kids
0: who are in kindergarten and first grade go to that my same school where I went to high school and I often find myself like lost in my own memories walking through and have to be jolted back to the fact that somehow I have kids next to me who are, who are like, how do I have kids? I feel like I'm 14 whenever I walk through the hallway. So yes, there's something about,
1: Yeah. yeah, that's a wonderful image. I mean, I could see writing a poem about that. You know, you're with your own children in this building and they are forming their memories and their emotions and you're right beside them. It's like the two generations and different decades, and it's so rich. It's such a rich subject for a poem. I'm not such a poet, but maybe I'll try writing
0: an essay about it now that you've inspired me to do that. You can write a a poem about it.
1: (laughs) You 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 could write a poem from the point of view of the person thinking it, who's not necessarily you. I mean, anybody can write poetry, I think, from a narrative voice perspective like it's not you it's not lyric poetry but it's like a narrative monologue you you could certainly do that
0: well that's the question really about poetry that i i i wonder and i was wondering while i was reading your collection is what necessarily makes it a poem could i take a paragraph that i wrote in an essay and if i change the form would it become a poet a poem like how do you know it's a po- how do you know it's a poem i know that sounds Ridiculous, but some lyrical language—if you morphed the form of it—I feel like could be more poetic. But how do you know when you have a poem versus a paragraph?
1: Well, it's a good question. Poetry is is essentially very experimental, working with language. I think that you can take any passage that you care about. You know, you have to have some emotional investment. That is the secret of poetry. When we read poetry, like. Shakespeare, or Mary Oliver, or Sharon Olds, or Amy Cole—we're sort of reading this encapsulated, intense emotion that's been really polished and maybe like a stone that's that's been made smooth and, and aesthetically beautiful. It's not raw emotion. It's not like somebody screaming, you know. But it's been sort of shaped. So anything that you personally care about, you could work into a poem if you took time, you know, it's a, med- it's a meditative act. And much of my writing time is spent walking or running and thinking. In other words, maybe 80% of writing is is thinking beforehand of the tone that you want and just trying to choose the sort of vocabulary. The actual writing time is secondary. So
0: how, tell me about your running. How much, how much running do you do?
1: Well, I try to run every day when it's cold. I don't go out as, as much. And I sometimes I run and walk and run and walk, sort of walk very fast. If I'm with other people, I walk. I have some women friends with whom I go walking. In the pandemic, we, we meet two or three times a week and we just sort of walk, no matter how cold it is, we sort of bundle up just to get exercise and when I run alone, it's it's more beneficial for my writing. When I'm with other people, I tend to be, you know, we tend to be talking, which of course is distracting. And when warm weather, I can I can run quite a bit, and I I would go out every day, usually in the late afternoon, and I sort of think about my writing. I I live outside Princeton, about four miles. It's a semi-rural area. There are country roads, so I can be running past pastures of sheep and cattle. There are farms here. Wow. Do you listen to music or you just let your thoughts gestate? Oh, I wouldn't listen. No, I wouldn't listen to music. I would do just, you have to think and concentrate on on your writing. Hmm.
0: Wow. And you don't have any pain? I'm like astounded by this (laughs) because it hurts my knees and I'm like, you know, in my forties, but anyway.
1: No, I don't have any pain, but i found that if I had pain like in the knee a little bit, if I just don't run on it for a couple of days, it goes away. But I think that we have to be careful. If you have a little bit of pain in your knee, many people just wanna keep on running and saying, well, it's like, I won't let this stop me or it's nothing. But I think that's a mistake. I think the best thing is to stop running for, for a couple of days. Wow.
0: And then your other recent book, The Other You, the opening story in this collection was so interesting. It was literally like what I think about all the time is what could my life have been like? What if I hadn't have had kids? You know, what if, and of course you pin it on a moment where a woman ends up not taking this exam that she should take and that she would have aced because she was super smart. And there becomes like you versus the other alternative of life, which everybody must think about from time to time. What if, what if this had happened at this moment? Would I not have had my kids? What would have happened to them? What if
1: I, you know, what if, what if, what if? It's amazing. And I think the pandemic, being in quarantine and isolation for a year, has made many of us really think about alternative lives. Yeah, well, it's not only that, but you, you know, I don't know how you met your husband, but say you met your husband at a university or you got introduced by somebody, it'll be very easy not not to have met. (laughs) you know, like what would your life be? Obviously we'd still be alive, but we would have lives that were radically different from the lives that we have.
0: I actually, I'm divorced and remarried. And sometimes I keep marveling at the fact that my life has become the other life that I wondered if I could have. And I literally like sometimes drive down the same street with my second husband and the two kids I had later in life. And Living in a different house, and I think I can't believe that I was like it was just me, you know, ten years ago, driving down the street in a different car and living in a different Amazing. house. Yeah, it's really where crazy. These, where do you live? Well, I, I live in New York City, but I was talking about you know in in Long Island, out in the Hamptons, where I grew. Up. I've been going since 1979. So, <laughs> so I've been traveling yeah. the same streets this whole this whole time. And
1: well, I have a similar situation because the house I live in now with my second husband is only f- about three minutes away from the house that I lived in with my first husband who died, Ray Smith. He died in 2008. I go by that house all the time. I drive, I go out of my way to go by that house and I remember my life there and I have a kind of dreamlike nostalgia how I could actually walk in that door and that the house would be there and all the rooms come back and then my, my first husband would be in his, his office where he was, he was an editor. And like everything is like a hallucination, but then it's actually 2021, you know, and not only have I lost that first house, but I lost my second husband. And so I'm in this house alone. And it every life seems to be so like a dream, I think because, partly because of the isolation of the past year. And yet, you know, we're still here. and We're still living our lives. Wow. It's crazy that on top of
0: all of this and the loss and everything, that then everyone has to be thrown into this period of time where you have to rethink everything because you're alone with your thoughts for so much of it as well. It's like a cruel joke in a way. But anyway.
1: But for you, you've probably been in quarantine with a family. So probably I, you have a lot of attention paid to ch- the children. I mean, probably it's been... You haven't been alone as much as somebody else. So you probably have had a different kind of, a radically different kind of experience. Yes, there have been moments where I would have loved to be alone.
0: <laughs> yes, I've been, you know, my kids have mostly been in remote school for this whole time and I have four kids and yeah, it's a lot. I have not had a lot of time alone. So, but everybody, everyone, everyone's plate has been sort of rearranged. We've all had to learn how to sort of eat again, <laughs> if you will, during this during this time. Yeah,
1: I would guess that you as a mother have found time maybe late at night or early in the morning when people are sleeping (laughs) that you found some special, sacred, quiet time for yourself.
0: Well, honestly, that's part of why I love doing
1: these interviews um,
0: and why I love doing my podcast and meeting people like you and having conversations because while this isn't alone time per se, it's when I talk to people, that's how I get in touch with like who I am when I'm not, you know... (laughs) picking up toys or doing the laundry or all these like day-to-day things. Like this is such a gift. It's like connects me, not just to the person I'm talking to, but to myself. I don't know if you feel that way when you talk to others.
1: Well, I remember my friend, Toni Morrison, when she was my colleague at, at Princeton, she had a busy life and she was teaching and so forth. So she would get up at five in the morning and do her writing. She would sort of get up early and do her writing. That's You know, working on novels like Beloved in other words, she found a time. Probably she would rather have been asleep, you know, like most of us, but Tony found a time that was the sort of sacred time. And I try to do that too. I find that because I don't have a, a domestic schedule, I can uh, I can waste a lot of time, you know. When, when my husband was living and we had more of a schedule, we would do things together. And of course, we were out in the world at that time. My life was a matter of a da- daily schedule. And so I would get a lot of writing done. But now with an open sort of timelessness, you think, well, I have all day long to work on my novel. So maybe I'll do this chore first or answer some emails. In other words, if you're more busy and connected with other people in the world, I think you actually get more done. Yeah. It's like
0: give a busy person something to do and it'll get done in two seconds. But. <laughs> yeah. Are you
1: working on a novel now? Oh, yes. I have been working on a novel very intensely since the pandemic began. I think that it's been a great solace, And putting together the poems for uh, American Melancholy and using the, the photograph on the cover of the book is a photograph taken by Charlie, my husband, of Lake George, which is his was his favorite place in all the world. And there are two little duck. You can just sort of oh, see yeah. a duck couple <laughs> like that's supposed to it's so melancholy these two little this little couple of, du- of ducks on this choppy lake is sort of like symbolic of, of, the, of the marriage i suppose and it seemed like just the perfect cover for that particular book and the predominant tone is melancholy but there are some poems that are meant to be funny like the one about the cat the different kind of cat dot Caterpillar, dog girl—you know and there are a few—and the one about Marlon Brando is supposed to have some humor in it, so it isn't an all melancholy. And then also with the other Yule, the story called *The Unexpected*, where the young—the woman writer, she's not young any longer—she goes back to her hometown, which is the f- hometown of the first story, Uville. and then she meets these people like, who went to high school and grade school with her, and they're all so jealous and mean. <laughs> And they keep asking her these awful questions, you know, are you sorry that you didn't have any children, or are you alone, or could you do your career over again, or, or, you know, the questions that they put to her are really kind of niggardly and nasty, all that is meant to be somewhat funny, you know, in a dark, humorous way even
0: the one about the friend waiting for her friend to show up late at the restaurant at the vegan place and you're like they didn't even really love vegetarian food but you know like they thought they should be there uh, and even yeah. how you you kind of joke that the, one of them had another child because the other had another yeah. child and they were funny
1: well i think that women women friends who have known each other a long time are really like sisters and they're very supportive emotionally and there's a there's a, a kind of a quiet intensity The friendship goes on for so many years. They know each other so well. Some of the bonds are even stronger than between a husband and a wife because the wife doesn't always want to tell the husband, you know, some things where you're more likely to tell a woman friend. My friends and I, we call ourselves like the girlfriends. It's hard to believe that we're well beyond being girls because there's a kind of girlish connection of often humor and, you know, teasing and playfulness that you'll find among women friends. But the, the women friends, that story is one of my favorites. And there are three stories in the collection, all set at the same vegetarian restaurant. It's a place that I knew in, in Berkeley that Charlie and I would go to. Kind, one of these menus with all this, you know, lots of kale, <laughs> lots of organic and, and things that don't sound, <laughs> they don't really sound very appetizing, but they're they're politically correct. although you
0: end up having like a bomber show up at this restaurant. So in the past, and there's a lot of history to the restaurant in the story. So it's not exactly like a
1: sweet (laughs) brain. In each story, he shows up some way in each story. One story, he, he seems to be there. Another story, he has been there. And another story, you, you sort of hear what he's thinking is he himself is so dissociated like he wants to set off a bomb and he wants to cause a a catastrophe but he doesn't really comprehend that he's going to die like he sort of thinks to himself well this isn't really going to happen is it you know like I, i didn't do very well in chemistry and science in high school i'm really not going to be successful and i think probably a lot of people who do desperate things maybe including suicide A part of their brain is thinking, well, this is not really going to happen, you know. I'm just going to sort of play through the gesture, which is somewhat theatrical. And suicide bombing is so theatrical, you know. It probably rarely achieves any kind of goal at all, except to destroy human life. That uh, There must be some element of dissociation that the person doesn't really think he's dying or with some religious-oriented or politically religious-oriented suicide bombings that they actually think they're going to go to heaven. So they're going to be in some other dimension. They don't really think they're just going to be a- annihilated. So with any kind of a suicide gesture, there must be some element of hallucination and fantasy. When you start a new project as sort of a living
0: literary legend who's won all these awards and you must feel a sense of accomplishment and confidence in your writing. When you start something new, do you ever feel worried like that it's not going to be good or like your luck is run out? Or do you approach everything like knowing what you want to say? Or like, what is it like when you start a new project, like the novel you're
1: working on now? Well, let's say that writing is a kind of activity. It's, it's cerebral and also emotional. So you know that you're going to do some writing if, if you're a writer. Like next Monday, you're going to be writing. So you have this sort of a ferocity of yearning to, to be creative. So what, what are you gonna do with that? You know, It's like harnessing some power. Are you gonna work on a poem? Are you gonna work on a short story? Or are you gonna work on a novel? You're sort of choosing what to do with this yearning to, to write or to compose something. But if you're haunted by a subject, you're probably going to be limited to writing about that particular subject. If you look at the very last paintings in Van Gogh's life, which are very thick, the paint, the brush strokes are very thick and they're all natural scenes like of the sky and the landscape, in the sun or flowers, it's everything very thick you can feel that the artist Van Gogh was totally in the throes of a a kind of dream-like intensity of emotion that maybe he couldn't really control. So it's a kind of benign compulsion. I say it's benign because it's productive. It's not that somebody is just washing their hands, you know, over and over again in in a non-productive way. So if you are a writer, and I'm friendly with Margaret Atwood, we're almost the same age, and we sort of came of age in Canada. When I lived in Canada, Margaret was a rising, I mean, very rapidly rising poet, and I was writing prose fiction books. But I think Margaret Atwood probably shares with me this feeling that you never really have mastered anything. You, know, you do know from the past that if you work at it, sort of diligently every morning, you know, as long as you can, you will achieve something, but you don't know how hard it will be. You don't know how long it will take. You don't know how miserable you might be. So it's about, to answer your question, it's both something that's, that is familiar because you've done it before, but unpredictable because you don't really know what it's going to be. A writer who's written novels is challenged not to repeat herself so each novel should be stylistically different i try to make my novels different from one another if i have a long novel like night sleep death the stars is my my most recent long novel i'll just i could show you this is over here. so this is a really long novel you can see that this, this is a family novel with about with the parents and about five children so my next novel which is coming out in august is much shorter it's about a marriage after the husband has has died it's very much a sort of mem- memoirist novel which is really only about two people with you know some pe- people in the background whereas this long novel is about about seven people and i'm moving from one person to the other and has a lot to do with politics in America right now. The new novel is very intense and limited to two people, almost nothing, really almost nothing at all about politics in America. Mostly the emotional intensity of losing a spouse, being unable to save the spouse in any way, and then being haunted. Most of the novel is about the aftermath of a loss and how, we're haunted by grief, but in the novel, literally haunted by thinking she sees the husband. And maybe she really sees the husband, you know, we don't really know. So that's an example of how, because you've written one thing, the next thing you do might be much shorter. Or the next thing you do might be a book of nonfiction. It's sort of reacting against what you've done most recently. Sounds like it could be a play. You know, can't you see it? Maybe. No, no, it couldn't. It really couldn't be a play because it has a it has a lot of uh, hallucinatory passages that are very dreamlike, and they're in this unfamiliar setting. I think that losing somebody takes you to a new, a new world, and literally, they're in New Mexico. They're in a place sort of like Santa Fe, but not. It's not Santa Fe, but it's like Santa Fe, and the landscape is that beautiful. The beautiful landscape of of New Mexico, which is really inhuman, you know. It's an austere, red, russet, red, mountainous landscape without much green in it, mm. and it's sort of like Georgia O'Keeffe country, very austere and sort of lunar. It's like you're on a on the moon or on another on the Mars or someplace. So that's where this this novel sort of plays out, whereas the novel that I've been showing you is actually set right, much of it's set right in the room I'm in right now, because, it, because it's very much an autobiographical novel. And the widow in this novel is living in a house like my house. So I've done some Zoom interv- interviews about this novel, which is so weird because the woman in the novel is in this room a lot, and I'm literally in the same <laughs> the same room. What is
0: the title? Someone's asking in the chat, what's the title of the novel going to be? Does it have one yet?
1: Yes, it's called Breathe. Oh, I think that's going to be great. Yeah. Well, we all have the hospital vigil. I don't feel I'm the only one who's ever gone through it, but I have actually written about the hospital vigil in in the other you, you know, the hospice. We all go through it. Well, you're at the hospital all day long and leave at night and come back in the morning and and you get to know the elevator you take, and you walk down the corridor, you go in a certain room. It's so, I don't know, it's, I guess, a universal experience, and each person suffers it or endures it alone, you know? We are all alone at the same time, it's universal. Do you have any advice for someone just starting out who wants to be a writer or trying to be a writer? Well, I teach writing, a writing workshop all every semester. I teach in the fall. I teach at NYU, and I teach at Princeton. And right now I'm teaching an, a course at, at Rutgers. Of course, they're all Zoom. In my course at Rutgers, I have about 15, just by accident, all women. In fact, Margaret Atwood is going to visit our class today. And w- writers are people who've been reading. I think that we become writers because we read when we're young, When we're very young and maybe our parents read to us, you know, children's books with pictures and the parent reads this little text. And after a while, the child has heard the story many times and the child starts to read. I think that's how parents teach their children to read, you know, in literate cultures. Did you do that sort of thing, like reading to your children?
0: I still do that type of thing just like my mom did to me and yes I love it and sometimes they're and like they, One love more, they love it but it, usually I'm so tired at that point of the night I'm like why do I always save this for the night when I'm my most tired why don't we read at like three in the afternoon when I'm full of energy but
1: and well, they're they, like don't, they, don't they, they like you know, that they don't love they it particularly not like they're all cuddling in bed yes. and then they fall asleep and their mother's reading to them I think that's really lovely yes. No, it's nice.
0: And I try to remind myself when they ask for a second book, I'm like, it's not like they're asking for iPad time. Like, I should give them a second oh, book.
1: It's a second book. I wish, so I, then- my children. I wish I had my children's book here to show you because I've written a number of children's books, but they're in another room, so. Oh. <laughs> they're all about kittens. Oh. Yeah. Each book is about a kitten. Love it.
0: Well, I will, go, I will stock up on your children's books now
1: that... <laughs> So thank you very much. There's a lot of great thank yous in our chat. And thank you, Joyce. And thank you, Zippy.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.